0: I was talking to a friend this week and he asked about my uh, sermon text and when I told him it was Ephesians 1, 1 and 2, he looked at me, me with a very concerned look on his face and said, is this the pace that you're going to be going through this book at? And I assured him and will assure you that no, that's not the pace. Uh, this, this sermon will be an introductory sermon to the, to the epistle of Ephesians and we will be picking up our pace next week. With that said, our sermon text this morning is Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. These are the very words of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that your word is living and active, that it cuts us to the piercing of joint and marrow and makes us new. We thank you for this wonderful epistle. We pray that you would take these words that were written so long ago and make them new to us today. Teach us and instruct us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, the great Anglican pastor and theologian, John Stott, wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians. And in his preface, he introduces us to this epistle with great precision and clarity. He says this, One of our chief evangelical blind spots has been to overlook the central importance of the church. We tend to proclaim individual salvation without moving on to the saved community. We emphasize that Christ died for us to redeem us from all iniquity rather than to purify himself for himself, a people of his own. We think of ourselves more as Christians than as churchmen. And our message is more good news of a new life than of a new society. He goes on. Nobody can emerge from a careful reading of Paul's letter to the Ephesians with a privatized gospel. Ephesians is the gospel of the church. It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create, through Jesus Christ, a new society, which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. For God's new society is characterized by life in place of death, by unity and reconciliation in place of division and alienation. By the wholesome standards of righteousness in place of the corruption of wickedness. By love and peace in place of hatred and strife. And by unremitting conflict with evil in place of a flabby compromise with it. The common way that we talk about salvation in the gospel in our day is as if we're an earthly people destined for heaven. But in 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 reality, the gospel makes us a heavenly people destined for earth, and the church is the place on earth where heaven is realized. We are indeed a people who pray, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've titled this sermon series, Ephesians, God's Charter to the Church. There's several reasons for this. One of the unique features of the epistle of Ephesians is that there's no glaring problem that Paul is addressing as he is in most of his other epistles. In 1 Corinthians, it's division. In Galatians, it's the Judaizers and their false gospel of the church. In Colossians, it's worldly philosophy and asceticism. In Thessalonians, it's false teaching. And on we can go. But in Ephesians, there are no warnings and there's no glaring pastoral concerns. And in this way, it's uniquely generic, and it gives off the impression that this is Paul writing with no distracting circumstances, just able to give a clear, deep, pastoral, and glorious exposition of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It's likely that this epistle was written to Ephesus because of its importance and centrality to to this region in Asia minor in the first century and then it was circulated from there among the other churches of the reason, of the region second an exposition of the gospel of the lord jesus is just as much an explanation of the gospel of the church for paul and the rest of scripture it's inconceivable to understand the gospel in the strictly individualistic sense that we commonly think about it today. We tend to think that the gospel is mainly about my individual salvation, how Jesus died for me and how I get to heaven rather than hell when I die. And if we go beyond that, it's about my spiritual growth, how I'm being fed. Now, that's not those those things aren't important or true. It's just that they've taken central stage to the, the neglect of the real star of the show, which is the church and the realm in which all of those things take place. He exhorts them as a body of believers, and he wants to see themselves as though who, those who have been called collectively into something so new and so glorious that it reshapes everything about their lives. For Paul, the entirety of salvation is rooted in and flows out of our union with Christ. And union with Christ is union with the whole Christ, head and body. You can't have one without the other. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve twelve. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Third, Ephesians is not only robust and exhaustive, it is a glorious epistle. Throughout the entire history of the church, Ephesians has held its rightful prominent authority for its beauty and its depth. It's one of the most attested and quoted uh, books of the Bible by the early church fathers. It's been regarded by various prominent theologians as, quote, the crown of St. Paul's writings and the queen of the epistles. It was John Calvin's favorite book, of the Bible, and the Scottish reformer John Knox asked for Calvin's sermons on Ephesians to be read to him on his deathbed. The great Puritan theologian Thomas Goodwin, who wrote over 900 pages of commentary on just the first two chapters, said this about Ephesians. It has been esteemed among the choicest of epistles and is accordingly placed in the midst of Paul's letters as the most sparkling gem is in the, in the setting of many jewels." A more recent commentator called it the quintessence of Paulinism, and N.T. Wright compared it to the London Eye, faithful Brit he is, as a breathtaking view of the entire landscape of the gospel. Another great British preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, remarked, there is nothing more sublime in the whole range of scripture than the epistle to the Ephesians. I'll trust that your appetite is wet. Lastly, before we get into the text itself, I want to reiterate the main themes of this epistle. I've stated a couple already, but I want to make them explicit. First, union with Christ. Get ready to hear that phrase a lot. This this epistle offers such a penetrating examination of the gospel because Paul roots everything in the heart of the gospel, which is our union with Christ. Second, The Trinity. It can be tempting to think about the Trinity as if it's a a topic that we study in our theology textbooks, but for Paul, the gospel is incomprehensible without understanding how each member of the Trinity works together for our salvation. Third, the glory of the church, for the glory of the church is the very glory of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians eight twenty-three, And as for our brothers, they're the messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Ephesians is indeed a charter of the church, but it isn't simply a programmatic outline for how the church should behave. It portrays the church as the dwelling place of God, the realm of true human existence. And to quote the psalmist, the joy of all the earth. Brothers and sisters, the church, the body of Christ, is the greatest thing on the planet. And my hope in prayer is that as we work our way through this letter, we'll see how these things fit together and deepen our love for our triune God and for one another. With that said, let's get into the text by looking at the first word, Paul. It was once asked about Israel's first king, is Saul also among the prophets? Well, the inhabitants of Asia Minor, especially in Jerusalem and Tarsus in the first century, surely would have wondered, is Saul also among the apostles? Remember, this is the same Saul who stood by, holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. The one who Luke tells us in Acts 8 approved of Stephen's execution and himself was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. The same Saul who was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and even asked the high priest for for permission to bring any and all Christians bound to Jerusalem, as Luke tells us in Acts 9. And it's the same Saul who was on his way to persecute those believers who was stopped dead in his tracks and blinded. The same Saul who was pursued by the Lord Jesus through Ananias, who laid his hands on Saul, and when he did, scales fell from his eyes, and he could see again, and he was baptized and strengthened. The the change of his name from Saul to Paul has a natural explanation, Saul being his Jewish name and Paul being his Roman name. And we know that countries would often give names to its citizens that would match its language and its culture. We see an example of this with Daniel and his three friends when they're in Babylon. But regardless of the historical reason, what's most important to keep in mind is that that old man Saul was put to death in that baptism. And the new man Paul came out of those waters who, quote, immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God, as Luke tells us in Acts 9.20. The fact that scales fell from his eyes also has a natural and common explanation of someone being cured from blindness. However, we shouldn't miss the hint of a serpentine presence with the mention of scales. This accuser of the brethren has now been made an ambassador of the king. And the one who had his scaly eyes open would soon be sent to the Gentiles to, quote, open their eyes so that they may turn from the power of darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, Acts 26, 17. Paul stands as a perennial memorial for the church and her response to her enemies. We pray for our enemies first and foremost because there have been been many Saul-turned-Paul's since this one, and we never know who may be next. But he's also a testimony to the resurrecting power of one word, of the Lord Jesus. When Jesus' friend Lazarus was dead in the tomb, what was needed to bring him back to life? One word, Lazarus. When Mary's in the garden on the morning of the resurrection, unaware of the true identity of the gardener, what's needed for her to recognize him? One word, Mary And when Saul is hell-bent on murdering Christ's people, what's needed to transform him into an apostle? One word, Saul. He stands as a living testimony to the personal, sovereign love of the Lord who creates and recreates with but a word. Well, I've spent far more time on Paul's introduction of himself than he would likely feel comfortable with, Because Paul is quick to get to what shapes his identity more than anything else, and that's his relation to the Lord Jesus. He is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The most basic meaning of apostle is sent one, but it's not simply a messenger who's merely relaying a message. An apostle carries the weight and the authority of the one sending. A messenger might proclaim to a people the good news of a victory of a war. But an apostle would come as an ambassador of the king, bearing his authority and message about how that victory changes your relationship to the new king, to the land, and to the people of the land. The office of, of apostle stands as the first and highest office in the church of Christ, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-eight, And God has appointed in the church first Apostles. The reason for this is that the nature of apostleship was foundational in the early church. Together with the prophets of old, they formed the foundation of the church. Ephesians two nineteen and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Notice how the structure is formed. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation. The prophets witness before Christ to his coming in the future, while the apostles bear witness about Jesus himself with their own eyes. And that Jesus sends them out to testify that he is the Christ about whom the prophets were speaking. The prophets came first historically, but now the order is switched with the apostles having borne witness with their own eyes. Together they lay the foundation. But a foundation is meaningless without a a house on top of it. And you can't build a house without a cornerstone from which all other measurements are aligned with and coordinate to. Jesus Christ is that cornerstone, the cornerstone of the living church where God dwells, the living temple where God dwells, which is the church. But Paul is also unique in his apostleship, and he testifies to this uniqueness of his witness in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 through 10. And if you remember, this is where Paul is listing the first witnesses of the resurrected Christ. And after he lists the hundreds of people, that Christ uh, appeared to after rising from the dead, including the apostles. He says of himself, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Paul has no problem referring to himself as unworthy and untimely born, because whatever he is, he is by the grace of God. And so it is with each one of us. It's precisely because Paul was such an unworthy recipient of God's grace that grace comes to be the defining feature of his own self-understanding. And of course, the grace of God to call such, such an unworthy man is ultimately rooted in the will of God, which Paul includes in his defense of his calling and apostleship. Well, now that Paul has introduced himself, he turns to his audience, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul addresses his audience with a common title he uses for Christians, saints. And these are the ones particularly that live in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus has an interesting history. The ruins of this ancient city lie on the west coast of modern-day Turkey, several miles from the Aegean Sea. And from the 6th to the 2nd century BC, it was ruled at various times by the Lydian, Persian, Greek, Egyptian, and Seleucid empires. In, 123, in 129 BC, a king of Pargamon left it to the Roman Empire in his will. It was then that Ephesus gained its status as one of the greatest cities in Asia Minor, and the reforms of Caesar Augustus launched it into the prosperity that it would enjoy for the next 300 years. It was a city of commerce, being both a port city, as well as a convergence of roads from the north and from the south and from the east. It quickly became the leading city in the richest part of the Roman Empire. It was a destination city, you might call it. And as one first century historian described it, bustling and glamorous. Ephesus was also home to the the, the goddess Artemis, who was called Diana by the Romans. Her temple was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens and was lauded as one of the seven wonders of the world. We actually get a glimpse of the power that Artemis had over this city in an account that we find in Acts 19 when the city of Ephesus' uh, literal Artemis idol factories were being shut down due to a lack of demand as a result of Paul's preaching. And Paul is almost killed by a mob, but he escapes and he leaves for Macedonia. However, the first time we're introduced in Ephesus, to Ephesus in Scripture is in Acts 18. Toward the end of his second missionary journey, Paul visited Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila, whom he met during his stay at Corinth. He left them in Ephesus and he traveled on to Caesarea, Antioch, Galatia, and Phrygia. It was during this time that Apollos came to Ephesus and ministered there alongside Priscilla and Aquila. Paul returned to Ephesus on his third missionary journey, probably around 52 A.D., and stayed there for nearly three years ministering to those saints. It's practically universally accepted that Paul wrote the epistle to the Ephesians roughly five to seven years later while, while imprisoned in Rome, along with the epistles Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians, which are commonly called the prison epistles. With that background in place, let us return to our text to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Again, this type of greeting is customary for Paul, but it carries much more significance than meets the eye at first glance. First, Paul calls them saints. The word saints simply means holy ones. Now, when we hear the word holy, we tend to automatically think about personal piety. But that's more of an outworking of the more objective meaning of this word. In scripture, to be holy is to be set apart by God for his good and holy purposes. And in this way, the items used for worship in the temple, such as bowls or cups or other utensils, would be described as holy. Becoming holy is first and foremost a passive act where someone is or something is acted upon. And for us, this setting apart happens in baptism. Where we are, quote, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, as Paul puts it in Colossians 1.13. Notice that Paul doesn't see sainthood as a special class of Christian citizens who can only be called saints after a long life of Christian service and completing a saintly checklist. No, Paul refers to everyone in the church as saints. Even you little children, Calvin puts it nicely. No man is a believer who is not also a saint. And on the other hand, no man is a saint who is not a believer. Second, there's another important important meaning of the word saints. People and place are always connected in Scripture. And Paul wants these Christians to know not just who they are, but where they are. What's the name of the place in the tabernacle and temple where God dwells most immediately? The holy place. And who is allowed into the holy place? The holy ones, the priests. And this is why the priests wore a turban that had the inscription on the front, holy to the Lord. Listen to God's instructions to Moses in Exodus 28:36 through 38. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord." Why was the plate fastened to the turban with a blue cord? Well, because to enter the holy place is to enter the heavenly places. And to do that, he must be made into a heavenly man. But the temple and Aaron's priesthood was but a blueprint of a reality that was to come. We hear this clearly in Hebrews 8.5. They, that is the temple and the priesthood, serve a copy and shadow of things to come, heavenly things to come. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The reality that was to come, who is the true temple and priest, is the Lord Jesus himself. Hebrews 4.14 since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. And it's precisely that Jesus has passed through the heavens into the holy places that we have access as well. He passed into the heavens, through the heavens, into the holy places as a man in order to bring us there with him. This is the exact line of argumentation that Hebrews gives us. Hebrews ten nineteen through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is why Paul puts so much stress on the ascension of the Lord Jesus and not just in Ephesians. Colossians 3, one. if then you have been raised with Christ, assuming you know that you have by now, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of of God. But Paul doesn't just call them saints, he calls them faithful in Christ Jesus. Now this phrase is closer to the idea of holiness as personal piety or godliness, but the word is more much more intimately connected to what we just described being a saint as. The outworking of our being set aside as saints and priests is our faithfulness to the calling that God has placed upon us. And it's really important to get this order straight because we tend to think of sainthood as something that we work toward and can only achieve after a long life of faithfulness. But that's totally backwards. God makes us something new, saints and priests, and then calls us to be faithful to what he has already made us. And this is actually the main overarching structure of the entire book of Ephesians. And it's, and it's helpful to get this in our minds at the outset. Ephesians is divided nicely in half with the first three chapters explaining what God has done for and to us in Christ, and the second three chapters are exhortations to be faithful to our calling. To get this more firmly set in our minds, I want to do a quick flyover of this letter because it's really important that we understand this order of events. Listen to how chapters 1 through 3 are all about God's work for, to, and in us, and then how chapters 4 through 6 describe how these realities work themselves out of us. Chapter 1, verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. One five, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus. One thirteen, in Christ we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. One twenty three, we are Christ's body. 2.5, God has made us alive together with Christ. Two ten, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for goods for good works. Two eleven, we were Gentiles in the flesh. Separated from Christ and alienated from Israel. 2.13, but in Christ we have been brought near and made fellow citizens of the house of God. 2.21, we are a temple being constructed as a dwelling place for God. Now listen to the exhortations beginning in 4.1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called four fifteen, we're to grow up in every way into Christ, who is the head of the body. Four twenty two, we're to put off our old selves. Four hundred twenty three, we're to be renewed in the spirits of our minds. Four twenty four we're to put on the new self, which is Christ. Five one, be imitators of God. Five eight, walk as children of light. Six eleven, put on the whole armor of God. pray at all times in the Spirit. Again, to summarize, Paul moves from what we were to the new creation that God has made us, and then he tells us to act in accordance with that reality. And that reality is summed up in the two beautiful words in Christ. Brothers and sisters, our union with Christ through the bond of the Holy Spirit is everything. It undergirds Paul's entire theological system, not just in Ephesians, but in every epistle that he writes. The glorious story and reality of the Lord Jesus becomes our story and reality. When believers come into union with Christ, they are imprinted with all the benefits that Christ possessed at his resurrection and ascension. This is the full gospel, full stop. And this is the foundational principle for, what Paul, for Paul and what he wants these Ephesian Christians and what we need to grasp. Because this is the foundation of all Christian life and worship. Luther describes sin as a turning inward into ourselves. The gracious gift of faith that God sovereignly gives us turns us outward toward another and in his indwelling presence, and in him we're turned outward even further toward one another. This is how one author describes how union with Christ should shape our moral understanding. Jesus Christ is not represented simply as the one through whom we have forgiveness, or even as the one by whom. The moral life is exemplified, but as the one in whom the life of discipleship takes place. Christ himself is present in the life of the disciple as the principal moral agent. We are not simply saved by him, nor do we merely follow after him. Those those things continue to be true, but we participate in him. And of course, all of this is possible because of the bond that we have with him through the Holy Spirit, whose entire aim is to work out of us Christ's own righteousness. Well, Paul concludes his prologue with a blessing to these Ephesians, which has already been extended to us here this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's blessing to the church begins where all blessing begins. Grace. Grace is the kindness and mercy of God towards his people. Grace is the unmerited favor to the ungodly, the enemy, and the dead. We tend to speak about grace as if it's a thing, like a substance. But it's not. Grace is his kindness and his loving disposition towards us. it's his willingness to, to love the unlovely and to give himself to them fully, which he has done in giving us his, his son. Peace speaks to the social character of the community that's marked by grace. Peace is the Shalom that Pastor Allen preached about several weeks ago: the good life which is the life that Scripture extends out to us and invites us into, life in the covenant body of Christ. The the gospel of grace is a gospel of peace. Peace with God the Father, in union with God the Son, through the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. And peace with one another as adopted children of the Father, as members of the Son's body, and those united together through the bond of the Holy Spirit. The perfect peace of our triune God becomes our perfect peace. Thinking again in terms of context and structure, from a broad sense, we might see the first three chapters as the gospel of grace and the second three chapters as the gospel of peace, which is actually what Paul calls it in Ephesians 6.15. Paul ends his epistle with a reverse benediction. Peace and then grace, creating a chiasm that reinforces that the way in which we live together in love and peace is all rooted in the gospel of grace. Paul will go to great lengths through this epistle to, ch- to show that the church is the true Israel and as such retains the substance of what was there all along and offered to them. This blessing should recall to us an earlier blessing that we find in scripture, In Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, Aaron is instructed to bless Israel with the following benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, in just these two short verses, Paul has given us the whole gospel, The man Jesus has fully satisfied the requirements of the law, has passed through the heavens, and is seated at the right hand of God, and he has taken us there with him. In him we have been given the status of saints, holy priests, and have been invited to live a life of faithfulness to that calling, which is indeed the good life. He has given us his own glory and made the church into a heavenly people. As we'll see next time, the Father predestined all of this, the Son executed all of this, and the Holy Spirit has made it effectual for us by uniting us to Christ. We'll continue to plumb these glorious truths as we proceed through this epistle. But for now, let us embrace this calling with thankfulness and gratitude. And let it be said of us here at the King's congregation, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus.